Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes, and the world ocean. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the concept of the looming mass extinction of marine life. I have with me today Dr. Douglas McCauley, Professor of Marine Biology at UC Santa Barbara and a Sloan Research Fellow in the Ocean Sciences. Dr. McCauley is lead author of a very important article that appeared in Science Magazine in January of this year. It was an article that made front page news in the New York Times when it was released. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be here. We're delighted to have you. I understand uh, that you grew up near where we're sitting here in Long Beach, California. Exactly. And in fact, my high school job was right behind us here in the Port of Los Angeles. So I grew up and uh, worked starting at age 14 on fishing boats and uh, made at that age a whopping $4.50 an hour out harvesting fish with uh, a bunch of other fishermen just up and down the coast from here. So it was a wonderful first introduction to ocean ecosystems, really kind of got the addiction for oceans into my blood. At some point I realized I could probably do more for the oceans with my head than my hands, so I switched over to uh, marine science and, uh, and happy to find myself at the table with you today. And we're all fortunate that you decided to make that switch. It's always good to start at the beginning, and in this article you use the word defaunation in the title. Defaunation doesn't roll off the, the tongue of most people in the public easily. Tell us what defaunation means and why you chose that word. Right, Jerry. So scientists sometimes have a bad habit of taking a simple, a simple concept and making it overly complex. And defaunation kind of does that, but at the heart, the core of the concept is really straightforward. So think of deforestation, right? That's the systematic study of plant life on, on Earth, on the planet, right? And the idea there is to see where we're losing forest and understand why we're losing forest and better intervene in preventing forest loss. Defaunation is basically the same thing, except now instead of trees, we're dealing with animals. Defaunation, the loss of fauna. So the science of defaunation is about describing where we're losing fauna, why we're losing fauna, and then what we can do to intervene. And I think it's a very important story. And, and that article demonstrates the power of synthesis and integration of information from diverse sources, putting it all together and asking what it means. Did you have trouble recruiting co-authors uh, to join you in this venture? Well, actually it kind of came organically. I had lots of conversations with colleagues in marine science sort of in between dive sessions or overnight after you've finished uh, some science on the oceans over beers. You, you often, as you're saying, in your day-to-day -day business of being a marine biologist, you're very focused. You're studying the parasite on a particular fish in a particular depth strata of the ocean, right? Well, in these downtimes, you get a chance with your colleagues to sort of step back, zoom out, and see what the big picture was. And we had these conversations in lots of places in lots of different ways, and we were asked, which was a wonderful invitation, to try to say, how can we put these pieces together to try to get a more global view of what's happening in particular to animal life in the oceans? And it wasn't hard to get uh, the same people that we were engaged in these conversations with for years to sit down at the table and, and come up with this synthetic work. And it's interesting because you demonstrate very clearly that animal life in the ocean is doing better than animal life on land. Well, Why is that? Yeah, well, it was, it was, it was fairly interesting to us, um, Jerry. So 
you know, we didn't know what the answer was going to be when we sat down to answer this question, what is the status of marine life in the oceans and how does it compare to the status of wildlife, wildlife on land, right? And you don't, that's, that's a good thing. You don't want to sit down and do science that you know the answer from. Otherwise, there's a, a bunch of ways that could be worrisome, right? As we worked through developing, pulling together different data sets, developing different analyses, getting all these pieces of the puzzle together and starting to fit together, we, we saw just what you, what you described. We saw a view of the oceans that was telling us that wildlife in the oceans are in fact, by many measures, much healthier than wildlife on the land, which is really encouraging, right? That's the sort of thing you want to find. We also saw a few signals that maybe we can talk about which suggest that there are some risk to this, that this Stability in this health is a little bit precarious, and a lot of what we do in the next decades will determine whether that sticks, the good news stays with us, or whether it evaporates. And we humans have been, only been on this planet for a couple of hundred thousand years. Life has existed maybe for four billion years. Did the damage to life on land, animal life on land, was it a slow progression that matched our growth in population, or were there specific events in the history of human beings that punctuated these impacts? We tried to engage that question directly in this science. What we did was we used a lot of different information sources to try to describe some of the different phases by which humans have impacted wildlife on land. And we recognize about three phases. Um, now, of course, I'm gonna add the caveat here that when you're describing the history of human interactions with wildlife on land, right, all over the planet, things get a little bit coarse, right? But let me just give you these three phases that we recognized. The first phase is you're hunting wildlife using simple tools, artisanal means, right? It's that's just bows and arrows and spears and things like that. So that's when we were hunter-gatherers. That's right. So that's, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, right? And actually, there's some pretty good examples of even using these simple tools, we had really big impacts on wildlife. We, we drove megafauna, for example, extinct in a lot of continents that we, we arrived to. So we went from there into a second phase. We're still hunting animals, but now our toolkit switches. Instead of using these simple tools, um, we use industrial strength tools. We're now hunting with shotguns. We're moving our, our game and our products around on railroads and things like that. And, and we're at this phase, in the industrial phase of harvest, we're able to have impacts on some of the most prolific, the most abundant animals on the planet, right? driving um, things like uh, uh, passenger pigeons totally extinct in this phase. And then we move to the last phase. This is industrialization or a commercial use of habitat. We, instead of just hunting the animals, we started using and changing their space. And that's where, like you said, things really became, the rate of, of our impact on wildlife really changed. Things really got worse when we started using and damaging habitats. Where does agriculture fit in all this? Uh, towards the end. So, I mean, we've been doing agriculture for a long time, but we've, using, we've been doing industrial strength, factory farming, of industrial agriculture only for, let's say, the past 100 years or so. So this is, this is when we really get serious about, uh, about clearing. You know, this is when uh, in the middle of America we cleared out so many of our, our prairie lands and things like that, and, and now it's replaced with agriculture and corn. So that fits closer to kind of the footprint of humanity right on top of space, rather than hunting out the things in the forests for food. We're, we're actually using their space for our own, for our own well-being. So it, it, agriculture also led to a lot of fragmentation of the environment, uh, taking over more of the land service, using more of the, the water. Does that factor into this? It, absolutely, it, absolutely. So, I mean, there are lots of different ways that we can industrialize use of space. Um, and there are good ways and there are bad ways. I think we're, we're every, you and I and everybody who's watching will be on the same page to say, we need few, few food for humanity, right? And 
and increases in our use of agriculture and, and the rollout of bigger and larger farms is absolutely essential to address world hunger. But there are smart ways, there are clean ways, there are intelligent ways to roll this out, and there are dirty ways. In a lot of places, unfortunately, we chose dirty options and weren't thinking about the impact on wildlife. So there was a lot of damage done. And we're going to have to increase the food production by a significant amount over the next uh, few decades, so we're going to have to get even smarter. That's right. And not only on land, I hope we get a chance to talk about it in the oceans as well. And, and we will. You point out in this article are different kinds of extinction. Tell me what those different kinds of extinction are. Okay, right. So we recognize a handful of different types of extinction. The, the first is what is what is the most common form, and that's global species extinction. That's kind of when you say, that species went the way of the dodo. That's, uh, th that's the extinction that comes to mind, right? That's uh, the every last individual of the species on the planet has died, has gone extinct. There's no coming back from that kind of extinction, right? And that's a really important kind of extinction, but let's talk about a few other kinds. Another important kind of extinction are ecological extinctions, or some people call them functional extinctions. The concept here is that maybe you haven't driven every last animal, every last representative of a species extinct, but you've knocked them down so that they're so rare that they're basically not doing their jobs anymore. They're not doing their ecological job. So think of, for example, if, uh, if we were to consider um, something that afflicted the trash collectors in the world, right? Important service, right? To have your trash picked up and collected. Well, what if in America we lost trash collectors all over the nation except in a couple spots? Maybe there's a few left in New York City, right? Well, trash collectors wouldn't have gone extinct, but locally they would not be there. They wouldn't be doing their job. Trash would be piling up on the streets. So the function, the service they do would have gone extinct. And one last form of extinction we recognize is commercial extinctions, when an animal becomes so rare that it's not profitable to hunt anymore. Doug, you and your co-authors point out that the rate of extinction in the ocean up until now has been much slower than that on land. What are some of the reasons for that? Right. It, well, Jerry, it's just harder for us to get into the oceans and do just about anything, right? So on land, we've had some really profound impacts, as we were talking about. And, and that's partly because we're a terrestrial animal, right? So we can hunt, and we can build, and we can build cities and industry on land much easier than we can in the oceans. So we've been interacting with the oceans for a long time, fishing in the oceans for some 40,000 years or so, right? But in order to actually really ramp up our impact, it's, it's taken a lot of technology to overcome the challenges of doing things like catching fish or catching whales in the oceans. And some of that technology didn't come to us until just about after World War II when we built up all this new infrastructure to, uh, to basically do war, right? We used sonar to find submarines. We repurposed that sonar to find fish and make our ships go faster. We used the same kind of innovation then to chase down fish. So the, the peak in our impact, at least in terms of harvest, began about, uh, well, about 75 years ago, 75 years ago after World War II, and that's when we really had those technologies to overcome the challenges of getting into the oceans and harvesting. So things could change in the ocean then in terms of our effects on, on marine life. The, the rate of extinction should, could go, go up in the ocean. The and uh, one of the big issues, of course, is climate change uh, with ocean warming and ocean acidification. Those are long-term effects, though. We, we have to deal with them, but it will be a long time before we see the benefits. What about some of the shorter-term things? You mentioned fishing. What about overfishing, destructive fishing, bottom trawling, those kinds of things? Right. Good point. So 
it's really important to deal with something like climate change, but you're absolutely right that it, that's, that's a massive problem and it's hard for a lot of us to kind of get our heads around how to, how to engage climate change. But something like overfishing, that's something we can see a result on rapidly. And you can make change within your own nation, you make change in your own state, you can make change a reef in front of your house. If you actually, as a village or a community, decide we want to fish differently, we want to adopt more sustainable practices. And it's really important. So, Climate change is going to make the oceans hotter and more acidic, but if we don't have fish in there, we're not going to have a good future for ourselves and for the people that depend on the oceans. So dealing with overfishing is critically important. So we need to do, have more responsible fishing, and the U.S. sets a good example of managing our fisheries, I think. Probably but the best in the world, right? Probably the best in the world, certainly one of the, the best in the world. But if we're going to meet the demand for seafood, we're going to have to learn how to farm the ocean just like we farm the land, only maybe more intelligently. What's your take on the role of aquaculture in the future? Right, no, I, again, I agree with you, Jerry. I mean, we need the oceans to be a source of food going forward, that we're gonna have more people on the planet, we're gonna have more people that are eating protein in the future too. And we can't keep up from wild stocks to feed that demand for protein, right? So I think we need to engage aquaculture. As we're talking about agriculture, there though are dirty ways and there are clean ways to do aquaculture. So aquaculture is growing gangbusters, right? In 20 years, we expect in the in, in, across the world that we'll be eating more farmed fish than we eat wild-caught fish. That's, that's a huge change, right? That's like what happened on land when we switched from hunting our dinners in the forest to raising them. That's happening now in the oceans. And it's not, it's not a matter of saying yes or no, it's happening. It's a matter of saying, let's do it the smart way, the clean way. In fact, I think it was earlier this year that the amount of seafood that came from aquaculture equaled the amount of wild capture wow. fisheries. We're and there and you're right, we have to learn how to do it right. And um, we would like to think that California could set the example because we have a strong ocean ethic, we have knowledge and technology, we, we ought to be leaders in that arena. You point out also in your article that creeping industrialization of the ocean uh, will take a toll or could take a toll. Deep sea mining, uh, ocean desalination, all of those. Don't we have a tool that's designed to help us contain creeping industrialization? I think it's called marine spatial planning. Right, we have a tool, it's a great tool. Marine spatial planning is exactly what we need to do to engage some of the new growth in the oceans. I think the first thing we have to say is we have to realize that this growth is coming down the pipeline towards us, as you said, in energy, in aquaculture, um, elsewhere in our marine sectors and mining. Um, on land, I think in many contexts, we realize that we needed to plan out the future of land space too late. Los Angeles is a great example as I was stuck in traffic <laughs> getting over here, right? Yes. I wish that the, 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 the folks that planned out Los Angeles had, had stopped and said, you know, this looks like the Wild West now, but let's actually envision what growth is going to be like so we can have a more sustainable, efficient future. The people that live here and the wildlife that lives here. Well, part of our goal with this paper was to say, hey, look, we see precursors for some very rapid industrial growth coming at us in the oceans. And just like you said, we're going to need some of that. We're going to need this food. We're going to need some clean energy, more food and clean energy from the oceans. But we can plan where that goes. We can use good data to help plan where that goes so that we don't have these industries stepping on top of each other and we don't have them stepping on the future of wildlife in the oceans. And in California, we did half of that marine spatial planning better than any place else, and that was to identify marine protected areas. We seem to be reluctant to use the other side to identify areas in the ocean 
that would be appropriate for human uses that could benefit society without adversely impacting marine life. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well, like I said, I mean, I think it's really important for us to say we need to think about what the future's need, the future needs are going to be from the oceans, and that can be an one of the very important needs is going to be continue to feed ourselves to get more of this wonderfully nutritious food on our plates. We're a little bit more hesitant, I think, in. Uh, um, and, and now we have uh, to engage things like aquaculture because uh, a lot of this growth, aquaculture is a good example, is happening far from home, right? And we, we our first near-trick reaction is to say, let's continue to keep it happening far from home. But <laughs> right. if it happens here, we can control it. Right, you know, that's a good point. So how optimistic are you that we will use the knowledge, the technology we have to avoid mass extinctions in the ocean? Very optimistic, Jerry. I think just as we were saying, we're seeing this early, right? Uh, I think if we could have transported ourselves back 200 years ago on land in Los Angeles elsewhere, we would have engaged the future of this development a lot differently, right? If we knew then what we know now about how important keeping the environment he healthy is to our own well-being, we would have we would have come up with a smarter future. We would have planned out this future better. So we're seeing this now in the oceans. We have this wonderful opportunity to do things better in the oceans than we did on land. And I think you're right. It's, a, it's an opportunity. We should look at it as an opportunity and not as a series of problems. And entrepreneurs like oppor opportunities. And so do I. So if you, if you had total control over human activities that influence the ocean, what would be your five or ten point program or what would be several of the, the major initiatives you would put in place? I don't, I don't think you want to give me total control, Jerry, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take it if you're passing it for a moment. Well, for the oceans, really, I think one of the biggest things we can do is get people engaged in the oceans. Uh, now, I'm, of course, preaching to the choir here because that's precisely what you do, but I really think that uh, People don't care about something like the oceans. They don't understand it. So I really think that a really important part of what marine scientists do and marine educators and educators at large need to do is actually people break down the kind of scary desert that the ocean I is into this wonderful um, complex mix of stories and beauty and, and get people engaged in understanding and then caring about the future of the oceans. That's what I would do is put a lot more resources into trying to, people, trying to get people to care, get their hearts and heads underwater. And I think that uh, institutions like this aquarium depend upon people like you who are generous with your expertise and can work with our storytellers so that we can develop programs that are accurate and balanced and that engage the public and educate them. So we're delighted that you're here. The, uh, it's clear from what you've said, the decisions we make over the next few decades are going to be very important in terms of what the ocean will look like at the end of this century and beyond. Right, I agree. It's just a few decades, maybe a century away before we actually, uh, we have in our, in our hands right now, we have right in front of us this, this opportunity, this necessity, this responsibility to chart a future for the oceans. This health we're talking about, it's here in front of us, we have to hang on to it. And it's, it's going to be decisions we make very soon that will determine which path we walk down. We're coming near the end of our time, Doug, but do you have a parting thought you would like to pass on to our viewers? Well, I'd just like to return to this thought that you, 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 you gave us, that it's an opportunity that, to, you know, when we're talking about uh, futures for the environment, we get bombarded with a lot of bad news, but the oceans, as we've, as we've talked about, are wonderfully healthy, and this is an, an excellent, a unique opportunity for us to do something really good for our world. We, we sort of we blew the opportunity for a lot of places on land, but we have this wonderful second chance that you rarely get with the environment 
to chart a better future for the ocean. So I'm really excited. I think you've framed it well, a wonderful opportunity in front of us. John Gardner made the statement, we're faced with a series of opportunities brilliantly, brilliantly disguised as <laughs> insoluble problems. And I think that's what we face in, in much of, of the, what we deal with the environment, what we see as insoluble problems, and they really are opportunities to show our, how we can use our knowledge and our technology to create a better future. Well put. I want to thank uh, Doug McCauley for joining me today on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you will join us for our next program. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. Thank you.